This is episode 320 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. Today's articles are, If the Grid Goes Down, What Would You Do for Work? Five Lessons from 1810. And Do You Really Want to Tell People That You Are a Prepper? Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, before we get started, just want to remind you that this episode is being sponsored by my new ebook, The Preparedness Community's Guide to a Microbiz and Increasing Your Finances. It's time to finally advance your preparedness goals. Make sure that you have multiple streams of income. And if you'd like some more information, go over to microbiz.biz or theprepperwebsitepodcast.com and you can find some more information on how you can start finding multiple streams of income. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into our articles. We have some really good ones today. This first one comes to us from mickroland.com. And uh, I've read one of Mick's articles on the podcast before, um, but this one was over at edthatmatters.com, my personal website. Uh, this one is on his website, mick-roland.com, and it's a really good one. Again, the title is, If the Grid Goes Down, What Would You Do for Work? Five Lessons from 1810. So let's go ahead and read this one. After a prolonged grid-down scenario, work will look very different from how it does now. The vast majority of the jobs people earn their living today are either directly dependent upon the grid or upon grid-dependent fossil fuels. Those jobs and that grid-supported economy would simply cease to exist. Think about your own job. If the power was out for six months or a year or longer, would your job still exist? If your job is gone, what will you do? It's oft repeated in prepper circles that a big EMP would send America back to the 1800s. Let's assume that happened and that the survivors have moved past the raging gun battles and lawless Mad Max stage. The resources those survivors consumed every day, like food, water, etc., would have to come from either storage or be newly created. We live in this storage versus creation dynamic today, too, of course. You either have a million-dollar trust fund to live off so you don't have to work, or you do have to work to provide your daily bread. Storage is finite. Work keeps producing. People will eventually have to work and make their daily bread. While some may find the prospect of living in 1810 terrifying, the people back then managed to get by with reasonably unterrible lives. Some of them were reported to actually be happy. This without the luxuries our culture has deemed essential but aren't. America in 1810 had an economy. It had supply and demand. It had resources, capital, and labor. America in Thomas Jefferson's day managed to function without the grid or cable TV or Facebook. Work for them, however, was different from what most people do today. To see how different life was back then, I studied the records of a semi-subsistence farm in central Massachusetts. It seemed like a good place to look for life in the early 1800s. River Bend Farm seemed similar enough to what a prepper's rural BOL would need to become after the stored buckets of freeze-dried foods ran out. The Prepper family would eventually have to become farmers, creating new food for themselves. 
studying Riverbend Farm yielded several lessons for what a 21st century person might expect life and work would be like if America ever were thrown back into the 1800s. Lesson number one, expect manual labor. So much is done for us today by either electric motors or fossil fuels that it has become easy for us not to notice. A little motor grinds our coffee beans in the morning. An electric pump sucks water out of the ground to fill our coffee pot. The grid heats the elements in our coffee maker, etc., etc. It becomes so common that we scarcely notice anymore. That is, until it's gone. Back in 1810, most of the work was done by muscle power. Some was done by water wheel power. Rural folks labored from before sunrise to after sunset, almost never getting everything done that needed doing. Men worked in the fields, tended the animals, cut and split firewood. Men and women beat flax stalks and combed it into fibers that women folks spun into linen yarn that they then wove into homespun fabrics. Clothes were washed by hand. Water was pumped and hauled by hand. Horses or oxen pulled the plow or the wagon. Men with scythes cut the grain. Men with flails threshed the grain. Men with saws cut logs into boards or timbers with other men assembled into houses or barns. Muscles did the work. Are you ready to do physical chores of an 1800s life? So what can you do now? If the grid goes down for a long time, expect that you'll be doing a lot more manual labor. A common bit of prepper advice is to get in shape. This doesn't mean bodybuilder shape. Most people in 1810 did not have buff beach bodies. What they were, however, was accustomed to doing manual labor. Bench pressing 300 pounds won't come up much on the farm. Hauling buckets of water, armloads of firewood, wheelbarrows of dirt, all day will be the norm. Improve your stamina. Do manual chores around the house for a full day. See how you fare. The experiment will likely tell you where you need to toughen up. Work on it. Lesson number two. Expect to be more self-sufficient. The folks at Riverbend Farm made things for themselves. They grew their own food, even if not absolutely everything they ate. They raised animals to provide meat and or protein, milk, cheese, and eggs. Eventually, they specialized in milk cows. They cut their own wood for heat and cooking. They built their own structures, usually with help, see point number three. Fixed their own tools, wove their own baskets. The women spun their own yarn and wove their own fabric. If they needed something, they made it themselves. This was the time before factories in Walmart. After the EMP, the factories won't be cranking out anything. An unfortunate feature of our culture today is that the average person has become an incapable, no longer able or willing to do much of anything for themselves. They spend their day earning an income doing some grid-dependent job. That income pays for someone else to do just about everything else for them. Odds are, since you're reading this, you aren't one of the incapables and want to be even more self-sufficient. What can you do now? Do more yourself. Start out slowly if you have to. Plant a little garden, even if it's buckets on your apartment balcony, so you can learn to grow yourself some food. Don't call a plumber. Fix your own leaky faucet. Change the oil in your car. If you've got the basics covered, kick it up a notch. Learn to hunt small game. Skin and clean them yourself. Cook it over a fire. Try grinding wheat, no electric mills, to make a flour, and then bake your own loaf of bread. 
Build a stool or a chair out of wood. You don't have to be a master at these tasks. An asymmetrical carved wooden spoon still scoops soup. It doesn't have to be perfect. You know, guys, going back to uh, to this, um, you know, just recently I fixed my refrigerator. And uh, if you follow me on inst- Instagram or even on the Facebook page, you would have seen a picture of uh, a stupid little $5, part. actually it was less than $5 uh, part uh, for my refrigerator. And what happened was, it, if you can just imagine, we had a takeout box that uh, fell out of the refrigerator and it somehow just landed perfectly on the little lever that that closes. And, you know, it's a very soft type, you know, push uh, lever that when you close the door, it turns off the, the light. Well, somehow this takeout box landed right on it and broke it. Well, it didn't allow for the when the door would close, it, it wouldn't, uh, you know, let let the refrigerator know that the door was closed. So it just seemed like it was always on. So I found that little part and um, or the little piece that broke off. I was able to put it in there. But I noticed that for some reason, my the numbers, the thermostat was off, although it was kind of staying cool. Um, but it was starting to warm up. Well, when we had a lot of uh, when we had a lot of food in there, it was getting warm. Uh, but when we would take it out, and I finally would duct tape. Thank goodness for duct tape, right? You got to have multiple rows of duct tape in your in your uh, survival preps. But anyway, I was able to put some uh, some duct tape on it to to keep it cool. So I didn't wind up. Um, well, it, the refrigerators kept cool on the refrigerator side. The freezer was working fine. Well, I thought I had multiple problems. I thought I had that little thing that was just turning on and off the light. And then I I thought I had maybe a thermostat issue or something along those lines. And so I started researching it online and uh, came come to find out that that little lever, when you push it in, I think it controls the damper that uh, allows the the cold to come over from the freezer into the refrigerator to keep the refrigerator cold. And so that's what was not happening. That's why my refrigerator was warming up on the other side. So I, I, you know, I figured out, let me try this and see if it happens. And, and then I'll, if I need to, I'll go to the next step. So I, I ordered this little part, less than $5. I think it cost me more to get, uh, you know, two day shipping or whatever. And so, but you know, in all it costs less than $10. So I get it in, uh, yesterday and a very simple hack to, uh, to, to deal with this. All you do is pry the old, uh, the old little push button lever mechanism away from uh, the refrigerator wall, and there's two little clips there. You clip it back in, and boom, you're back in business. I mean, it took me really 10 minutes to fix, and it fixed my other problem too. So my thermostat, my numbers started kicking back on because it's digital. And then I thought I was going to have a big problem there, and I was almost getting to the point of like, man, I don't want to fool with this. I've got, I'm so busy. I got things going on. I got projects that I'm working on and I got very close to calling, uh, you know, somebody to come out and work on this refrigerator. And I'm so glad that I didn't, but it was videos online going to parts, uh, websites online that just, you know, you can, you can pop up a schematic and see exactly what you need. I mean, it was so easy to do. And we live in a time now where it's so easy to fix things that you should be able to at least practice on that, even if it is something like, you know, you know you're going to replace, but it's something that you can work on and, and, and practice on that you get the skill of, of working on something like that. 
So a couple of a couple of uh, episodes back, I read the article on the prepper compound, right? And the compound it was it's not a shelter. If you if you didn't listen to that episode, go back and listen to that episode, and maybe even go read that article. But the idea is that the compound is knowledge. As you put knowledge on the inside of you, you know, in your brain. That's knowledge that you're keeping and you're using it and you're especially if you fix something, you know, you are working with it hands on and that tends to be burned into your long term memory. So when you get to a place where you see something that's kind of similar, you've had experience working on something like that. And so your mind starts firing and you start triggering back to that. And it's like, okay, well, last time I worked on something similar like this, I did this and it seemed to work. And so that's how knowledge works. It builds upon each other. And so what Mick is talking about here is start those skills, even if it is. And I've I've told you this before. Even if you're living in an apartment, go get a tomato plant from Home Depot or Lowe's and just grow a tomato plant. And you get the, uh, you know, you get this, the, uh, just the joy of being able to grow your own tomatoes, but you get the, also the experience. That experience is very valuable to you. And uh, so next time you know kind of what to expect, you know what you're looking for, you know how long uh, vegetables are going to be or tomatoes are going to be on the vine or whatever it might be. Um, you know, there's a, I fixed my wife's uh, or I replaced the battery in my wife's tablet. And, you know, basically most people just, when they get to the point where the battery's not charging or holding a charge anymore, they just throw those things away. But I decided to, you know, hey, I'm going to go ahead and, and look into this. And uh, it was a nice tablet. Um, basically, the only thing that was wrong with it was it wasn't holding a charge. I found a video on YouTube. I ordered the the battery and the replacement battery and went to town. It was a little scary because some of those little ribbons on the inside of a tablet are so small and you just feel like, man, you just move it, you know, uh, too, too much or whatever. You're going to pull it apart, right? My fat fingers. But I was able to get in there and I had the video going and I was able to do it and it just... It was very easy and I was glad I did it. Not only was I, I felt good that I was able to accomplish something like that and follow the instructions that I was seeing on the video, but that I got the experience of doing that. And so next time it's easier. Next time, like for instance, when I replaced my son's screen on his laptop, it was easier. I felt more confident because I've already had a little bit of experience, you know, pulling apart, you know, those, those high end electronics. So, you know, what Mick is saying here is try it, you know, go out there, try to fix some things and get, gain that experience. It's very valuable for you. All right. I went kind of long on that one, but uh, I think it's so, so important to do that, especially in our throwaway, throwaway society. You know, one of the, um, I, I don't watch too many movies now, but uh, the book of Eli, if you've ever watched that with Denzel Washington, when he is in the, um, I guess the hotel room or the room uh, with with uh, the girl. I can't remember her name, uh, but anyway, uh, he, he he says this one line. That it just it just has stayed with me ever since that movie. And he says, "We threw away because he's talking back to the you know before I guess the apocalypse or whatever." And he says, "We threw away things that people fight for now." You know, and I just that always stayed in my mind about how things if there really was, you know, a poop hit the fans, you know, scenario, things that people would fight for or things that people would throw away now. You know, they wouldn't even think about it. It's like I'm throwing this away. I'm going to Wally World. I'm going to go buy another one. It's just cheaper and easier to do that. You know, people would fight for. And so, uh, you know, just consider that as you are 
you know, going through this, uh, this self-sufficient thing that we're, we're all about and trying to better ourselves. All right, so let's go ahead and move on. Uh, I can just keep talking. Don't want to do that. Uh, number three is, or lesson three is, expect to engage in trade. Money was in short supply shortly after the War of Independence, as it might be post-EMP. The local economy didn't stop for lack of cash. No farm was an island. The folks at Riverbend Farm regularly traded what they had in excess for other things they wanted or needed. They traded crops, produce, and handmade goods. One of the most commonly traded things was labor. They were a community by necessity. It took many hands to harvest a hay crop quickly or raise a barn. Whoever refused to help his neighbor could expect no help when his own needs arose. Trading Labor One of the fascinating artifacts from Riverbend was an account ledger book in which the farmer recorded what he did for neighbors and what they did for him. Entries ran like June 20th, 21st, helped P. Johnson butcher cattle, two days labor, or June 24, H. Adams helped me cut and rake hay, one day. Each farmer kept his own account book with matching entries. When a day's labor was repaid, the record was crossed out. Every farmer knew to whom he owed labor or goods and who owed him. When the hay needed to be brought in or when a barn needed to be raised, it took a lot of shared labor for a short time. What would you trade? So what can you do now? Odds are you'll have time and labor you can trade. In addition to that, plan on having something you can produce in excess of your household's needs. Something your neighbors need and aren't producing for themselves. This takes some entrepreneurial thinking. If everyone else is growing zucchini, don't grow more of that to trade. No one will want it. If many other farms are weaving baskets, look for something other than baskets to make. Look for and plan for market opportunities. You know, I think one of the things that will be needed greatly is hygiene products. If they're ever, I mean, we're talking 1800s here, right? So eventually after all the bars of soap are gone, after everyone knows how to, you know, make, uh, you know, liquid soap and all that, all that's done, then going back to the old days of how to make soap and, and how to harden it and all those types of things, think about it. I mean, people are going to be dirty. They're going to have to uh, stay clean. They're going to know that. Uh, cleanliness is going to be very important to keep people healthy. And so uh, that might be something to stock up on so that you can trade that later on. And uh, even if you could make that with lard and wood ash, and I don't know what all goes into it. I I know that I've posted articles on it before in the past, but uh, you can come on over to the Tag Cloud and do a little bit of research there and uh, find out what kinds of things would be needed to make soap and uh, how valuable would that be. Just think about that one. All right, lesson number four is expect to make the best of what you have. Riverbend Farm sat on marginal soil that tended to be moist, being on the river and all. It was poorly suited to growing people food, corn, rye, wheat, and potatoes. The land was, however, good for growing hay. As such, Riverbend farmers grew mostly hay. They went with their strength. The farmers up the hill with better soil were good at growing corn, The corn farmers needed hay to feed their draft animals, but did not want to dedicate good corn-growing land to growing hay. The riverbend farmers traded their hay for corn. Farmers with large wood lots traded firewood for corn. Farmers with running streams built mills. Farmers whose houses were on regularly traveled roads ran small inns. 
They all capitalized on what they had. So what can you do? Assess what your BOL or bug, that's bug out location or bug in location has for strengths. Very few among us are going to have the perfect bug out location or bug in location that will supply all our needs. Realistically, assessing your location strength can help you specialize. If you've got a heavily wooded bug out location, plan ahead to be a provider of firewood or lumber. If you've got a running stream, figure on a mill. In all of this planning though, keep in mind the realities of market dynamics. If everyone around you has heavily wooded lots, your firewood won't be worth much in trade. If everyone around you had goats and pigs and chickens, your meat rabbits probably won't fetch much in trade. Consider your local market and find a niche. Lesson number five, expect to do many different jobs. The men and women at River Bend were farmers most of the time, but they also had many side gigs. They did day labor for neighbors. They assembled leather shoes in the winter and made wooden tools. The women at the farm braided rye straw for hats, spun yarn for the woolen mill, and wove extra clothes of their own to trade with neighbors. Some farmers had a mill and pond. For a couple of months in the spring, when the streams were flowing strong, they would saw wood, grind grain, or full cloth. Another farmer had a blacksmith's forge, but he seldom had enough blacksmithing to keep him busy five days a week or all year long. He still had to be a farmer too. The local doctor farmed. There weren't enough sick people to attend to eight hours a day, five days a week. Doctoring was his side gig. The Industrial Revolution has conditioned us into thinking that work is doing one job, the same job, five days a week for 20 years. If the grid goes down long term, almost all of those mono jobs will disappear. Would your job be one of them? So what can you do about it? Think about what sorts of side gigs you could do. Think of tasks people might need in a grid-down world. Carpenter, doctor, mechanic, veterinarian, tanner, etc. Be ready to do one or more of them. Most people will be in DIY mode, see number one above, and not need the routine things done for them like sweep their sidewalks or rake their leaves. Even if they wanted you to do their mundane task, would they have anything to pay you for it? You'd be better off if you can do something valuable on the side. Just make sure it's not something the others are providing. Market saturation means a lower value. And guys, as I was preparing for this one, I was thinking, man, this really plays into my new ebook. You know, micro, you know, having a micro biz and having multiple streams of income, and it really plays right into it. I mean, it's just a perfect, uh, you know, a perfect reason for it. And so, you know, in that, in that, uh, my new ebook, the idea is that you have multiple streams of income because you have micro businesses that you, that you're fine, that you can do. And, you know, those micro businesses will bring in money that allow you to, uh, you know, pay down debt, to, you know, that you can put away for an emergency fund or that you can put towards, you know, your, your preparedness, whatever, if that's buying food or if that's buying gear or even knowledge, you know, uh, buying knowledge. But then if you have those types of side gigs or, or micro businesses, that could also translate into if there was a poop at the fan scenario that you could go out there and do something. It's just not your typical thing that people are doing here. It's something that is, you know, in a niche 
then man, you really have a leg up because you would be an expert. You know, you would have a leg up on how all that stuff works, and uh, you could really be, uh, you know, somebody that could, you know, trade and, and get what you need because you have those skills. So your micro biz might become your main biz, right? So uh, anyway, I just thought that it, it fell right in line with that. All right, so there's a bonus lesson here. It's titled "Expect Clutter." When you're scraping by, spending every daylight hour just to keep the house warm, the family fed and the crops alive, tidiness becomes a luxury. City travelers in 1815 commented about the cluttered look of farms in the River Bend Valley. Homes were usually in some stages of disrepair. Yards had junk in them. Children were usually dirty. This was understandable enough. The men and women of River Bend Farm were exhausted from long days of labor. Less crucial things were let go until later. If you're a person with a low tolerance for clutter, plan ahead for how you're going to keep your bug out location organized and tidy when you're bone tired every day from working the fields until dusk. Odds are your clutter tolerance may increase. While it is sometimes tossed out as an OMG crisis that a grid down America would be a throwback into the 1800s, it needs not be so dire. Life back in 1810 was a lot more work, but people managed. They were not bored to tears for lack of Facebook or video games or the latest reality TV show. Quite a lot of them were happy. Those with ambition managed to thrive and achieve some degree of comfort. Plan ahead now, and the 1800s might not be such a shock for you. All right, guys, I think this was just a great article here. And, you know, as I was uh, as reading this, and again, as I was preparing... One of the, I just kind of felt like this article, just the flow of it, I could just read it very easily for me. Sometimes it's, it's just not as easy of a flow when I'm, when I'm reading, or maybe I do a lot of editing, I guess if you don't notice. But one of the things that I want to point out is uh, Mick is an author, and so he does have some books that he has written. And so I think that really lends to it, where you know his writing style, is. I just felt very comfortable reading it. And so if you are interested in looking at some of his books, come come on over to mickroland.com. I'm going to link to his article in the show notes like always. And uh, you can just kind of come and poke around and, and come check out some of his other articles as well. All right. So uh, again, that's uh, over at mick-roland.com. All right, guys. Our next article comes to us from Living Life in Rural Iowa. And uh, the title is, Do You Really Want to Tell People That You Are a Prepper? So let's go ahead and jump right into this one. We all know there is a lot of different kinds of preppers and in varying levels of preparedness. When it comes to OPSEC or operational security, I find there are three groups of preppers. There is nothing wrong with these three groups, although among preppers there is some disagreement about how deep your OPSEC should go. However, you will find yourself falling into one of these three following groups. The first group is all about OPSEC. They want no one to know they are a prepper and will certainly not talk about their preps in any way, shape, or form. No way, no how, nuh-uh. More than likely, they will die and people will find their supplies in an underground bunker under their house. Top security and only as a need-to-know basis for anyone in their lives except maybe their immediate family. Their immediate family is not allowed to talk about their preps either. The second group likes to talk about prepping, but they don't talk about what they have or don't have. They love a good prepper discussion, but they like to talk in generals. They will steer the conversation away from specifics 
about their plans and supplies. They are very concerned about their OPSEC if you try to push them or want to see their stockpile. Other than that, they are pretty chill about talking prepping. The third group lets their prepping flag fly. They will talk about prepping, show you everything they have, talk about their plans and future purchases. They will talk about it on television if they feel like it. They feel they have nothing to hide and want to encourage others to prep. They could talk prepping all day long in specifics and with great detail. Of course, these are generalizations about the three groups, but fairly accurate. Most preppers fall into one of these groups or mainly identify with being in between groups depending on the subject. Some preppers will talk about guns all day and show you what they have, all while keeping very quiet about their food stockpiles. Vice versa, they may want to show you their food supplies and whatnot, but keep their security on the down low. While I think it is good for us preppers to educate people who want to prep and people who should be prepping, there is always a question in my mind about this. Do I really want to tell people I am a prepper? The answer would be yes and no. Since I write this blog, you would assume that I want the whole world to know I am a prepper. However, that has not always been the case and in some situations, I still don't want people to know I am a prepper. I dread thinking about who may come to my home in an SHTF. I am sometimes embarrassed by what I purchased for my stockpiles knowing, well, I don't want to be without it either. I am a little afraid of being mocked about not having enough or not having the right stuff. I fall firmly into the second group. I may talk about what I buy from time to time, but I don't really want people to know exactly what I have. To me, that is my OPSEC. I could talk about prepping and self-reliance all day long. I love learning from others and telling others what I have learned. I love talking about what-if situations. I love learning new skills and learning from other people. However, I just don't want to talk about what I have because I am not comfortable with it. Your operational security is everything. You have to be comfortable with your level of security. Sometimes it will be in your best interest to tell and show everyone you are a prepper. If you live in a neighborhood, you want to get your neighbors on board with prepping. The more people you have prepping and the closer you become as neighbors, the better your security will be in the case of an SHTF. You all can watch each other's back, provide for those that lost, and generally take care of each other while taking care of yourself. You can set up your own neighborhood watch and patrols. You can seal off the perimeter if you need to and set up your own prepping community. However, you may live in a high crime area or the inner city. You may have moved away from family and friends. You may not know who you can trust or only have a handful of people to trust. In these situations, you may want to keep your prepping to yourself in the interest of OPSEC. People can't rob or loot you if they don't know what you have. You may need to hide your preps and keep your purchases on the down low. You may need to look unassumingly and quite quiet while being friendly. I would still establish a network with those you trust completely, but understand you will be prepping on your own. Talking about prepping to others and telling them you are a prepper is a leap of faith. You don't want to be mocked, so have a quick defense and answer as to why you are a prepper. You want to clear up any misconceptions about prepping because you want others to be prepping. The only two ways I know to motivate people to prep is by talking to them or letting them go through a crisis all on their own. Most people will have an eye-opening experience that will make them think about prepping and want to start. However, I think as preppers, we have a responsibility to plant the prepping seed and help others to become preppers too. Whether or not you want to tell people you are a prepper is your business. You have the right to decide how much you want to tell people 
you prep or not. However, as preppers, I think we have a duty to educate new preppers and encourage people to prep. You can do this by teaching new skills or encourage people to follow FEMA's guidelines for emergency preparedness. The choice to divulge your prepping is your decision, but we should all do what we can in the prepping community to encourage prepping. Thanks for reading, Erica. All right, so I, I guess as I was reading, you're probably thinking maybe to yourself what category you fall into. I kind of go in between both of them. I'm definitely going to fall more into the uh, to the second category, but I really I don't feel comfortable talking to people about preparedness until I know them. And so a lot of that is building relationships. So, for instance, if you would have been with me on my campus, uh, you know, two years ago, and and I was on the campus and I was there for you know, seven, eight years, every yeah, you know, I was very comfortable with everyone there, and everyone knew that I prepped there. That we talked about it openly when things were going on and crazy things were going on. People would ask me questions, and uh, we would just talk about it openly. Everyone knew. No one had any question or doubt about it. But for instance, you know, in the job that I'm, I've been there two two years now, and I don't openly talk about it. Uh, you know, I, I have started to discuss it with some people. Some people know that uh, I do. Uh, you know, that I, I do prep. Some people know that I have the the website and the podcast. You know. But uh, it's just not open, uh, so open. Now, what I will do is when, you know, we, like I, I talked about yesterday in yesterday's uh, podcast, that we are going into hurricane season. So if there is a disturbance that's coming or, you know, people start talking about hurricanes and stuff, I will start talking about that in, in bringing that up to people. It's like, hey, you know, hurricane's going to be coming. Make sure that you, you know, you uh, fill up your gas tank. Make sure you go get food before everybody else does. And I'll be bringing up those types of things to people so that they get an idea. So I'm planting those types of seeds in them. You know, the same thing, going back to the knowledge thing, when when people start hearing those types of things and then something else kind of clicks and causes them to, to think about that, then it, it gets reinforced, Right. So I will be talking about those types of things. Or, for instance, let's say, you know, uh, oil prices have been going up, gas has been going up. But let's just say Iran and uh, Israel really go into it, go after it. Or uh, for whatever reason, some Middle Eastern country uh, that supplies oil to the world, uh, you know, gets into a war. I might tell people something like, hey, guys, yeah, you know, there is uh, Iran and you know Israel are really lobbing missiles at each other and the price of oil is going up. So if you haven't filled up your gas tank, you might you might want to fill up your gas tank. It's always good to have a full gas tank. You should never let it go below half half a tank. Right. Just in case of, you know, an emergency or whatever. And so, you know, I'll start planting those types of seeds. And uh, I've been known to do that. So in, in that case, you know, I will be more leaning to, you know, number, uh, you know, number two or being in, in that second category. And then again, when I feel really comfortable with you, I start leaning in a little bit more to the third category. But even with that, I'm still not giving you a lot of specifics. So I guess I'm more, you know, in the second category there, um, you know, even along those lines, because I, I don't give specifics. I don't think anyone really should give specifics. Um, but uh, I do think, you know, talking about preparedness is important. Uh, I wonder how many people out there um, do prep, at least, you know, my uh, acquaintances that I know because of work and church and, and family, because they do know that I prep, you know, and hopefully they are getting that, that message and they're able to apply that into their, their lives. And so uh, definitely. So 
you know, think about where you are and think about how far you're willing to go to uh, plant those seeds. And sometimes it's just the the, the verbiage and, and the words and, and how you phrase things and, and bring up things. And you don't necessarily have to be talking about that you are a big prepper or whatever and that you have all this food and water and whatever. Uh, you could just be bringing up, like I was talking about hurricanes or, you know, blizzards or, uh, you know, heavy rainfall. You know, hey, guys, make sure that you're watching the weather. There's, a, you know, there's supposed to be a lot of rain. There's a potential for flooding. You could be stuck in your house. You know, do you have food and, and water just in case you couldn't get out of your house? You know, uh, Harvey is fresh on my mind. You know, kind of saying stuff like that would get people thinking. So anyway, again, guys, that's over at Living Life in Rural Iowa. I'm going to link to it in the show notes like always. And uh, hopefully you'll go check it out. And maybe, you know, there's some links here like the FEMA's guidelines for emergency preparedness. That might be something you want to send out to people uh, because, you know, FEMA FEMA does a lot of uh, advertising, you know, just basic uh, emergency preparedness for families for three days. You know, a lot of people say that is very, very minimum. Uh, but, you know, that might be a starting point, at least where you can, uh, a neutral place where you can send people to. Well, all right, everyone, that is it for episode 320. Thanks so much for hanging out on uh, on this episode. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You can come over to the Prepper website, podcast.com. And that way you never miss another episode of Sweet Prepper Goodness. Hey, and take a moment to connect with me. I have a ton of ways to connect in the show notes. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.